information. KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's three o'clock coming up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, July the 13th, 2010. Here we go again. They're still trying to fix that damn thing in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, God. It's not a spill. Why don't they stop saying that? It's it's a hole in the heart of the earth. We've hit an artery. It's not broke. It's busted. I came across this cartoon this week uh, in the New Yorker, of course. Uh, it's a couple of extraterrestrials. Zipping along in their spacecraft. Uh, they're looking out the window there. They're looking out at the Earth passing by. It looks like a baseball dipped in tar. One alien says to the other, Wasn't that one blue on the last trip? Something like that, yes. Green and blue. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. I, uh... I'm never sure, you know, whether my entire philosophy can be summed up by cartoons in The New Yorker, but I'm beginning to think it is. As I said last time, it's the editor of The New Yorker who says, there is no pain we will not publish. Those black blobs, I see them everywhere. Sea turtles think that, uh, yeah, all those clumps of oil and chemicals, they think they're jellyfish, I hope. I hope that the Prez, Barack Obama, can make a case for his energy bill out of all this. Of course, it's too late, but never say never. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. I'm reading the new biography of um, Barack Obama, trying to remind myself what it was we elected. Uh, you know that this is an exceptional man, uh that he would save the world if he could save the world. The book is called The Bridge. It's by uh, the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. And uh, some people have uh, complained that we have too many books about Barack, but I, I think uh, I think that he is one of the most remarkable things that has happened in the 21st century. Uh, uh, in any case, I had... One passage I wanted to read you, uh, 
let me begin. Let's see, I have two books here in front of me. One is the Barack book. The other is called Deep Blue Home. Deep Blue Home by Julia Whitty, W-H-I-T-T-Y, Julia Whitty. She's written a book about, it's called An Intimate Ecology of Our Wild Ocean. Now, this is the kind of poetic book that I need at times like this. Uh, I need someone who's written a love song to the sea, to the oceans. Uh, it's dense, yes. It's kind of kind of book I can read only a few pages at a time, especially before going to sleep, in the hope that I can dream uh, dream about the depths of the ocean as it was and. Hopefully, maybe again, you know, the mystery and enchantment of all that mar fire and the, the luminous oceanic depths. Uh, I, uh, I put this book, Deep Blue Home, next to the book about Barack Obama called The Bridge. Put them next to each other, and I tried reading first one and then the other. Uh, chapter two of the Life and Rise of Barack Obama by David Remnick is a chapter called Surface and Undertow. And, uh, you know, it's metaphors everywhere. All is metaphor. Uh, It's all about what he brings to the office, the oceanic depths, the, uh, the family, you know, his history. Study history. Learn your place in time. Uh... I tried lining up uh, a pile of books that had autobiographical uh, information, you know, um, going back to, oh, say, Frederick Douglass and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Richard Wright and James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain and uh, all the books about men of color. They are mostly men and then come a little later come books by the women, although there are some early books by the women as well. Uh, something to try try to understand uh, the nuances. Uh, what surface and undertow, the chapter on surface and undertow does in the bridge, is it tries to explain the... Uh, the metaphor for American diversity represented by our president. Uh, he has, in a way, he has chosen to be black. Uh, I'm fascinated with Ann Dunham, his mother, who was, uh, as as these things go, white, if you still think that, uh, well, I don't recognize biological race, but we all know that that's nonsense. Uh we all suffer from colorism. Du Bois said that the he said the difficulty or the problems of the 20th century, he said, would be the color line, which is a little different. Uh, race, uh, they tell us now, doesn't exist. But that, that's a big help, you know, when we're faced with the socioeconomic uh, myths and problems that we have. Anyway, in the bridge... David Remnick says that Barack Obama's family is vast. He calls it multiracial, multilingual, multicontinental, and multiconfessional. He's got a Kenyan step-grandmother in a village near Lake Victoria. She speaks only Swahili and Luo. 
He has a biracial half-brother who speaks fluent Mandarin and trades in southern China. He's got a cousin by marriage who's an African-American rabbi in Chicago, determined to forge closer relations among Jews, Muslims, and Christians on the South Side. As Obama puts it, he has some relatives who look like Bernie Mac and some who look like Margaret Thatcher. He has relatives who have been educated in the finest universities in the world. He has others who live in remote Kenyan towns. Another who has lived in a Nairobi slum. Yet another, an African half-sister, who wound up in a Boston housing project with immigration problems. Uh, Anyway, he says that the Obama family tree is as vast and intricate as one of those ancient banyan trees near the beach at Waikiki. As a politician, Obama makes use of that family. He asks voters to imagine it and him as a metaphor for American diversity. Actually, uh, I find that uh, Barack Obama's particular life is the details. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I identify so much. He's exactly the age of my two sons. Let's see. They, my sons are born in 60 and 62, Barack in 61. He's right there in the middle. His mom is about eight years younger than I am. She died at the age of 52. I think that is so, well, let's hope that she knows somehow. His grandmother actually died just a day or so before the election, but I'm sure she too knows uh, that he has found his way to the top. <laughs> Lucky guy, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm fascinated with his family life and the fact that uh, his, what is it, challenges, I love that word, a disgusting word, are much like the ones I face. Well, his mother's challenges, I I think she's, uh, what is the word for that? Uh, she's She's the kind of feminist that just goes out and does things. She doesn't bother with any kind of party party line uh she certainly lived her life she was uh an anthropologist she was just finishing up her doctorate when she was diagnosed with the cancer that killed her um his father fascinates me i i wrote a funny little essay the other day i i think i'll try to finish it and bring it in his his dad came to visit him once he doesn't um actually write much about his dad. His dad came to visit him for 10 days when he was 10 years old. That's Barack Obama Sr. Came from Kenya. Um, He and the mother had split when Barack was a little tiny guy and his dad went off to Harvard where he met another uh, woman and married her. And (laughs) Anyway, it's a long and complicated story, much like the stories of most of the people we know. But when his dad came to visit, things were difficult. Uh, the grandparents had trouble because the father was very overbearing. And Ann Dunham, Barack's mother, tried to keep the peace. Uh, but my favorite bit here, yes, Barack Obama Sr. was uh, distressed. He would not allow Barack Obama Jr., to watch the television show How the Grinch Stole Christmas. If that isn't about... 
about the best indication. Yes, he was an intellectual, an elitist, and American culture just left him cold. Uh, I'm afraid that, and once again, this reminds me of my own family, alcoholism got uh, Barack's father. He had several car crashes, uh, disabled from one of them before the crash that finally killed him. Uh, he was driving while drunk, yes. He went back to Kenya to save his country, but um, there were difficulties, and the party that he identified with fell from favor, assassinations, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, I recommend if you're fascinated with all this background and stuff, check out David Remnick's book, The Bridge, The Life and Rise of Barack Obama. I love the bits um, about his mom. You know how it was. He <laughs> he laughed at her because she loved romantic movies like Black Orpheus. And he she brought home records by Paul Robeson and Mahalia Jackson. And uh, the sister, his younger sister, Maya, born 1970, uh, she says that, of course, the mother was quite romantic. Uh, I don't think... <laughs> it's funny. Obviously, he's now old enough to understand the strengths of his mom. Uh, I wonder if he appreciated her back then when... Uh, anyway, uh, yes, I love the bits where one of his woman friends takes him to see... And Tosaki Shange's play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. He's a little older by then, and he's beginning to understand about gender and women's lives. And and Tosaki's play for colored girls is definitely the the great breakthrough play of the 1970s. Uh, oh, women's lives. I'm looking now into the book Deep Blue Home about the ecology of our wild ocean. It's still my favorite metaphor. I try, whenever I close my eyes, I try to go back to the uh, the underwater world that I grew up in. I remember, yes, swimming under that great reef down in La Jolla, trying to catch the fish. Maybe I'll have time to read a little more of The Little Mermaid. Anyway... In Deep Blue Home by Julia Witte, there's a couple, there's one passage. Let me just read you this one passage. It's about Herman Melville's character Ishmael. You remember Ishmael in Moby Dick? I, I watched some of the shows about the whales on television this week, and hmm, it breaks my heart to know. I think the worst of it is that the, the sound, they apparently... Our noise, as the ships, the military, uh, particularly all the noise, uh, the whales used to be able to hear each other, you know, halfway around the world, and now they're very limited. Uh, the the, uh, the sound doesn't carry because of all the noise we're making. When I think how how I hate a racket, I, I can just imagine these poor animals trying to listen to each other under the water and not being able to get through all that racket. Anyway, 
Herman Melville's character Ishmael. He disparaged the habit among old Nantucket whalers of eating, eating the whales. This is what Julia Whitty writes. She says, uh, oh, here's what Ishmael says. That mortal man, that mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp and eat him by his own light, as you may say. This seems so outlandish a thing. But no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night, see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you, it will be more intolerable for the Fijian that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming famine, against a coming famine, than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who naileth geese to the ground and feastest on their bloated livers in their in thy pate foie gras. <laughs> anyway. Ishmael, yes, Ishmael bracketed the breadth and narrows of human thought on these manners. Uh, first, he questioned whether, owing to the most omniscient lookouts, yes, at the mastheads of the whale ships, uh, now penetrating even through Bering Straits, Leviathans can long endure so wide a chase and so remorseless a havoc. He's talking about the... the uh, the whalers chasing the fish, and he says here, this is a quote, We account the whale immortal in his species, however perishable in his individuality. He swam the seas before the continents broke water. He once swam over the site of the Tuileries and Windsor Castle and the Kremlin. In Noah's flood, he despised Noah's ark. And if ever the world is to be again flooded, then the eternal whale will still survive, and rearing upon the topmost crest of the equatorial flood, spout his froth defiance to the skies. And this this bit goes on to uh, describe the ways in which Ishmael knew that even defiant leviathans will suffer extinction. Extinction, I read in some of the scientific uh, pamphlets these days, that we are going through a period of mass extinction. <laughs> I guess that's to make room for us, for us folks, us um uh, Human beings are taking up all the room. <laughs> Never mind. Once again, the books, uh, David Remnick's The Bridge, if you want to read all about our president and whether or not you think that he has the kind of background that forms the sort of character that can become a great man in the 21st century. Uh, he is, well, they call him... A Zen, uh, Zen official, but I think uh, he's either everything or nothing, this guy. Uh, it's just amazing. He does not fit into any of the categories. His sister Maya says, Barack was never neurotic.
anyway, he does seem to be the man of the future. Let's hope so. Uh, obviously, there isn't that much he can do, but uh, I think that it's a good idea to have someone in that job who is not without some, let's call it uh, depth, some wisdom. Uh, the other book is Deep Blue Home by Julia Witte, An Intimate Ecology of Our Wild Ocean. It's a hard book to read, but I just like to pick it up and read at it, you know. Uh, the Distant Geography of Water. Oh, gosh, it is it is fascinating. She wrote another book. Her first book on oceans was called The Fragile Edge. Won all sorts of prizes. She lives in Northern California, and her name is Julia Witte. Uh, Francis Bacon used to say, well, used to say back in the Elizabethan day, he said, some books are to be tasted, some swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. You know how that is. Uh, I know so many people who are afraid to tackle big fat tomes, books that they think might be a little too too thick. Yes, what's the use of being Irish if you can't be thick? Anyway, I think the secret is to pick them up, and if they're intimidating, just read the beginning, the middle, and the end, and see what you think. Uh, it may be that not every book is meant to be finished. I find that some school teachers get very cross with me when I suggest that we can read at some books. I, I am afraid that I don't finish all the books I read. I did finish The Greenlanders the other day, Jane Smiley's book about uh, the people who lived on Greenland back in the 14th century, 14th and 15th century. Ah, that was a nice trip. Anything to get out of this century and the 20th too. <laughs> I'll go back to the 19th century and read you a page or two from the little story that is my comfort these days. I just read fairy tales. Uh, I'm quite giddy. I can't seem to get a grip on things. Uh, uh, this story of the Little Mermaid is my favorite because, well, it's masochistic, of course, but it's all about the folly of um, this daydream that the Little Mermaid has. She wants her prince. She wants Mr. Perfect. Uh, but she saves him from a storm, and she takes him up and leaves him on shore. And Then she goes back in the water and watches, and a girl comes from the little nunnery on the hill and finds the prince on the sand, and he thinks that she is his savior, so he wants to find her and marry her. The Little Mermaid goes to the sea witch and gets a knife that she uses to cut her tail and give her legs. But she has to give the sea witch uh, her voice. So now she's got no voice. And uh, when she dances, the pain in her legs is excruciating. So all she has is her grace and charm to woo the prince. And uh, <laughs> if she woos the prince, and he marries her, then she will be given an immortal soul. Now, we all know how many women believe that story, you know, that it is only through love that we will gain an immortal soul. You know that. 
that old story. Uh, I heard a, a writer the other day, a, a man, he said that there are only two sorts of women in the world, the loved and the unloved. That's a sock in the jaw, isn't it? Anyway, I'm about halfway through this story. It's a very long story, you know. It isn't anything to do with the Disney story. That's another story entirely. The old story is by Hans Christian Andersen, and he did not take it from an even older one. He wrote it himself. He just made this one up. And as I say, it's loaded with feminine masochism. Uh, this woman wishes to uh, give everything up for love. I'll go on where I left off last time. Day by day, the prince grew fonder of the little mermaid. He loved her as one loves a good, sweet child. But as for making her his queen, that idea never occurred to him. But she knew she would have to become his wife, otherwise she could never have an immortal soul. On his wedding morning, she would become foam on the sea. Are you not fondest of me, of them all, is what the little mermaid's eyes seemed to say when he took her in his arms and kissed her beautiful brow. Oh, yes, you are dearest to me, said the prince, for you have the kindest heart of them all. You are most devoted to me, and you look like a young girl I once saw, but probably shall never find again. I was on a ship that wrecked, and the waves washed me ashore near a holy temple where there were several young girls serving. The youngest found me on the shore. She saved my life. I only saw her twice. She was the only one I could love in this world. But you look like her. In fact, you almost supplant her image in my soul. She belongs to the holy temple, and that is why good fortune has sent you to me. Never shall we part. Oh, dear, thought the little mermaid, he doesn't realize it was I, I who saved his life. I carried him across the sea to that forest where the temple stands. I sat behind the foam and waited for somebody to come. I saw the beautiful girl, of whom he is fonder than of me, and the mermaid sighed deeply. She couldn't manage tears. Yes, salt tears are not possible for mermaids. Ah, the girl belongs to the holy temple. That is what he said, so she will never come out into the world. They will never meet again. But I am with him. I see him every day. I will look after him. I will love him. I will lay down my life for him. But now, the people said the young prince is to marry. He's to take the neighboring king's lovely daughter to wife, and that is why he's fitting out such a splendid ship. The prince is going to have a look at the neighboring king's country. Anyway, that's what they say. But it's really to have a look at the neighboring king's daughter. He's going to take a big retinue with him. The little mermaid shook her head and smiled. For she knew the prince's thoughts 
much better than all the rest. I must go, he had said to her. I have to go and see the beautiful princess, for my parents demand this of me. But force me to bring her home as my bride, that they will not do, for I cannot love her. She does not look like the beautiful girl in the temple the way you do. If I were to choose a bride, then I would rather choose you, my little dumb foundling, with those eloquent eyes of yours. And he kissed her red mouth, played with her long hair, and he laid his head against her heart, so that it began to dream of human happiness and of an immortal soul. And then he discovers, the prince discovers, that his little foundling is not afraid of the sea. Because, of course, she is the sea. She is the, the pagan heart of things. I'll be back on the air uh, Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Out of the been listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org.